Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to host a late night sports talk show in New York City? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 39 of The Bridge. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. For those listening live, you can still interact with the show by hitting me up on the toll-free fan call-in line at 888-444-0570. That's 888-444-0570. You can also find the show every Wednesday night by visiting sportsradioamerica.com and finding the bridge under the show's tab. You can also listen to the show on your phone by using the TuneIn app. And don't just listen to me. Sports Radio America is a 24-7 sports radio station. So check back throughout the day and throughout the night. You might hear my show on repeat and you'll definitely find a lot of great content throughout the day to keep you satisfied. Some quick housekeeping items for you before we get into another exciting show worth of content. If you missed the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge will be available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. You can find the show on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund under Artists. And as I mentioned, you can visit LondonBridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle to stay updated when the newest show is live or posted. The Bridge is also available on several different apps, including SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. You can also interact with the show in several different ways. You can call in or text the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Let me know what you guys want to talk about. Let me know what's on your mind. Let me know some of the different things that you're seeing that might be a good addition to the bridge. And I'll have a pretty quick response in reply. You can also email the show at media at londonbridge.com. Any inquiries, any questions, anything I can be doing better, let me know there. Media at londonbridge.com. Now that that's taken care of, it's time to get into the fun stuff. Sound the horn! 
Here's this week's sports news, red like real news. The state of Mississippi is well known for its love of college football. It's not uncommon to see several programs having successes from year to year. But for the fans of college football in the state of Mississippi this weekend, Beer and tears were the only things flowing faster than the waters of the Mississippi River. That's because every single four-year college in the state were losers in their games this past week, ending the week with an overall record of 0-10. Let's take a second to run down the list. Old Miss, which ranked 23rd in the country entering their game, lost a slugfest to the number one team in the country, Alabama, 48-43. Mississippi State dropped to a disappointing 1-2 overall after losing at LSU, 23-20. The Southern Miss Golden Eagles suffered their first loss of the season by falling to Troy, 37-31, and Grambling State cruised to a 35-14 win over winless Jackson State. Two days earlier on Thursday night, Arkansas Pine Bluff pulled off a thrilling triple overtime victory over defending back-to-back Southwest Atlantic champion Alcorn State with a 45-43 win. The Mississippi Valley State Delta Devils got their teeth knocked in in their season opener to Eastern Michigan, 61-14. The Millsaps College football team suffered its first road loss at the hands of the University of Chicago, 35-16. Mississippi College lost to West Alabama, 38-13. Huntington College crushed Belhaven University, 65-21. And West Georgia rallied to defeat Delta State. 34-24. 10 games, 10 losses. So instead of watching college football this weekend, Mississippians can perhaps find a better way to spend their time. You can visit the Old Spanish Fort Museum to see the world's largest shrimp on display or see the world's largest cactus plantation in Edwards. The largest Bible-binding plant in the nation is in Greenwood. The world's largest pecan nursery is in Lumberton. Or you can visit the largest river in the United States, crack open a beer, and fill the air with a rousing rendition of the song, Old Man River. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let me take a quick break so our sponsors stay fed. When we come back, a new drawbridge once again dealing with the Los Angeles Rams and this week's, wait, who? With a player on the Pittsburgh Steelers. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. So last week saw the debut of a new segment called The Drawbridge, where we draw conclusions from what's going on in the sports world. The first topic of The Drawbridge was the Los Angeles Rams, who left St. Louis to return back home for this season. 
Unfortunately, the Rams opened their season with a horrific performance against the San Francisco 49ers, which resulted in a 28 to nothing loss and meant the LA Rams still had not scored a point since 1994. Well, the Rams responded this past Sunday and changed that, and they continue to have the Seattle Seahawks number as well. L.A. picked up their first win of the year and first win at their temporary home at the L.A. Coliseum, beating the Hawks 9-3, to which means they finally scored a point. However, the Los Angeles Rams still have not scored a touchdown since 1994 after scoring all of their points on field goals. In fact, all of the game's points were on field goals. So God bless those fans for spending their entire day roasting in the LA heat to watch their team's kickers take over the game and be the stars of the day. Because the Rams were unable to score a touchdown and have yet to score since 1994, let's take a look at what some of the pop culture was like since the LA Rams found the end zone in the National Football League. Lower the damn bridge. In sports, the Dallas Cowboys repeated as Super Bowl champions. The champion in baseball, however, was no one, courtesy of the 1994 MLB strike. The Houston Rockets beat the New York Knicks in seven games to win the NBA title when Michael Jordan decided he didn't want to play basketball anymore or wanted to avoid a severe punishment for his gambling addiction or wanted to better prepare himself for the role in one of the most critically acclaimed films of all time, Space Jam. The New York Rangers also won that year's Stanley Cup. In cinema, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, Dumb and Dumber, and the Christmas hit Santa Claus hit theaters, while Disney also released Pocahontas and The Lion King. Forrest Gump was the highest grossing film of the year and provided us with the year's favorite quote, and it's not the one involving the shrimp. And The Lion King was the second highest grossing film of that year as well. Long live the king. In entertainment, Sony PlayStation was launched. In television, the sitcom Friends premiered and the shows All That, All Real Monsters, and The Secret World of Alex Mack were introduced on Nickelodeon. Unfortunately, Nickelodeon also canceled the masterpieces of Clarissa Explains It All and Doug. In music, The Sign by Ace of Bass was the number one song of the year according to Billboard. If you're unfamiliar with that tune, it talks about seeing the sign, opening up your eyes, and seeing the sign. The most popular song to end the year was Hero by Mariah Carey. Justin Bieber was also born in the year 1994. In other music news, Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana, killed himself while famed rapper Tupac was assassinated. In other famous deaths, Jackie Kennedy passed away and OJ Simpson killed Nicole Brown and that other guy. In other entertainment moments since the LA Rams last scored a touchdown, the most popular Christmas gift was Barbie, dressed as Scarlett O'Hara of Gone with the Wind fame. 
Lisa Marie Presley married Michael Jackson, or Michael Jackson married Lisa Marie Presley, however you want to phrase that. Nancy Kerrigan was attacked during an Olympics practice and was quoted immediately following the attack by saying, Why? 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 <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. And to close out the entertainment list, the Wonder Bra was invented. As you can see, quite a lot has changed since the Los Angeles Rams last scored a touchdown. They'll hope to change that fate in their next game at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And if they don't score again, not only will you be hearing from them in next week's edition of The Drawbridge, you might be hearing a lot of this in the city of Los Angeles. If there's a better transition into the next segment than the cries of Nancy Kerrigan, you let me know. Call or text 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Moving on. Last week also saw the debut of Wait, Who? Which takes a look at some of the lesser known players you might see around the world of sports. This week's honoree is not to be mistaken as the great-great-grandson of one of the most famous outlaws in the world. Let's go to Susan with this week's edition of... Wait, who? 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 The Pittsburgh Steelers entered the 2016 season having to fill the void of one of the franchise's most beloved tight ends. Two-time Super Bowl champion, Heath Miller, decided to call it quits last season, leaving quarterback, Big Ben, without his security blanket. The home stadium of the Steelers, Heinz Field, will no longer be filled with the familiar chants of Heath, whenever Miller would make a catch. Pittsburgh signed Ladarius Green for the spot, but since he started the season on the PUP list, someone else had to take the role. Enter. Jesse James. Wait. Who? Jesse James? One of the most feared outlaws in the American Old West? The man responsible for more than 20 bank and train robberies? And the murders of anyone who stood in his way? Oh, you mean the other Jesse James. The other Jesse James went to play his collegiate football at Penn State. He broke the school record for touchdowns by a tight end as a junior with 10, then said deuces, and left for the NFL draft. James was taken in the fifth round by Pittsburgh in 2015. As a rookie, he appeared in eight games and caught eight receptions for 56 yards and one touchdown. This season, James has surpassed his rookie numbers in just two games. He has eight catches for 60 yards and one touchdown for the 2-0 Steelers. The 6-foot-6 six six tight end could become quite a threat in the red zone as the season goes on. Who can be the hero Pittsburgh deserves, and the one it needs? Jesse James. That's who.
Thank you, Sharon. Let's take a quick break so our sponsors stay fed. When we come back, we'll sit down with John Jastrzemski. He's a sports talk radio host for The Fan in New York City, among other escapades. You'll get to know a little bit more about him. We'll be right back on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As I mentioned before break, this week's guest is John Jastrzemski. He is a sports talk radio host for WFAN in New York City. He also works with CBS Sports Radio and bounces from here and there whenever there's an empty spot to fill. He's got a pretty interesting story when it comes to breaking in to radio and won an American Idol-esque contest to do so. He's the host of the JJ After Dark show on Saturday mornings from either 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. till 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. So it was interesting to talk to him about some of the different things that happened during his show. You can follow him on Twitter at John underscore Jastrzemski. That's J-O-H-N underscore J-A-S-T-R-E-M-S-K-I. And no, he is not the same John Jastrzemski that helped Tom Brady deflate his footballs in the 2014 playoff game, which will clear up as soon as the interview begins. So without further ado, let's get into that interview. I'm here with John Jastrzemski. He is the sports talk show host of JJ After Dark on WFAN in New York City. You might also hear him on CBS Sports Radio. He's all over the place on the airwaves, and he's been kind enough to join the show. JJ, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing fantastic. I'm up. I'm feeling good. It's beautiful outside. It's late summer, in summer, so I can't complain, my man. How's everything? I'm doing well. What more can you ask for? Let me get the hard-hitting questions out of the way right out of the gate. Did you or did you not allegedly deflate Tom Brady's footballs prior to the Patriots' 2014 AFC Championship game against the Colts? All I'm going to say is no comment. And uh, when I went up to New England, me and uh, Tommy over the weekend had a nice little conversation. I'm just going to leave it at that. I knew this was all a ruse. I knew this was just a cover-up. For people that don't know, no, he was not involved with Deflategate, a different person. Just humorous that your name would be closely involved with somebody involved with that. Seriously, like, what are, what are the odds? What are the odds? John Jastrzemski running out there, aside from me and my dad. Like, that is just outrageous. Really is. So I'm sure if listeners couldn't immediately tell from hearing your voice, you grew up in Staten Island, New York. I don't want to necessarily guide your answer for this, but I'm guessing you started falling in love with sports talk radio by listening to Mike and the Mad Dog on the fan. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I was always a guy that loved watching games, listening to games. Uh, I played sports my entire life and I found FAM probably when I was, I don't know, around 10, 11 years old, where I'd fall asleep, I'd put the radio on, I'd get in the car, I'd put the station on. And yeah, Mike and Chris, they were the gold standard as far as doing this. Uh, I don't think anybody's done it better. They had the best chemistry. They, they always knew how to hit that hard-hitting topic. So yeah, having those guys, like it's the soundtrack of your sports life, in like the late 1990s and into the early 2000s, it made me, you know, really consider why I wanted to find my way to Syracuse and get involved in the business. Because what those guys had is the best sports radio show ever. And uh, we're trying to work on that ourselves. Yeah. How devastated were you when Mike and the Mad Dog went off the air in 2008? It was more shocking than anything else. Like I, I was interning at Sirius at the time and, I remember that there were rumblings there 
that like dog may come to serious, blah blah blah. Right. It was very hush hush. Like nobody actually believed that it was going to be the end of Mike and the Mad Dog. And then it actually happened. And it was like a holy crap moment. It was like, wow, you're gonna have Mike by himself. We're gonna have Dog on Sirius, who's gonna be listening to him. But it turns out both of them have done very, very well for themselves. Dog's doing well. Mike has continued number one in the ratings for the last, I don't know, nine, ten years. So yeah, it, it stunk at the time, and it was weird when they first broke up, I guess you want to call it that. Right. But you got used to it. At the end of the day now, I'm like used to Mike being there five and a half hours. It's just off of the course. Now, I know you played a little baseball in high school. Was that something that you thought about doing at the collegiate level? Well, playing baseball. I still play baseball now in the men's league, but... There reached a point, I don't know if I was in high school, I don't know if I was in middle school, I was like, you know, as much as I love doing this, there is not going to be much of a future for me as far as playing, you know, professionally or playing D1 or anything like that. So, to me, when I was in high school, by the time I hit my junior, senior year, of course, I was still playing ball and I played high school and I loved it, but I was thinking about what the next step was going to be, and that's why I really put the pedal to the metal as far as looking at schools and looking at programs that had um, legitimate broadcasting type stuff. And Syracuse was my number one choice. That's where I wanted to go. I didn't get in right away. It kind of worked out that I got waitlisted. I found that, I think, late May, right before Memorial Day weekend in 2006, I was getting into Syracuse. So I had my other options up in the air i honestly didn't know where the hell i was gonna go to college but syracuse welcomed me and uh i I guess we can say the rest is history yeah you can say they're a pretty legitimate institution when it comes to the broadcasting and journalism and communication side of things what were some of the different things you did at syracuse to get started with getting your feet wet in radio and, and really getting to learn the industry from the people that were able to teach it up there Great question, and I, I think a lot of kids or high school kids or kids maybe in their freshman or sophomore year of college, they go the way to a school like Syracuse, or they go to any big broadcasting school for that matter, and, and some may be under this like illusion that if you go to class and get your classwork done, that you're going to be in a position to work in the field. Right. That couldn't be farther from the truth. To me, yes, my classes were useful. They were valuable tools. I know I'm giving you the PC coach speak for Syracuse right now. But seriously, I learned a lot of stuff in my classes. But I learned even more by doing my college radio shows. And, you know, a lot of people, they hear college radio and they think it's like dingy, joke, it's this, it's that. Not at Syracuse. Like, when I was doing two shows in Syracuse, we were coming on post-game shows after the football and the basketball games. And, it was like a process to like work your way onto the air because you had guys who were two or three years older than you doing the shows and they would like critique you. They would like listen to you. And listen, some of that process is flawed to some degree, but some of it was very, very useful. So by the time I hit my sophomore year, I was doing post game shows for football and basketball. Then I had my own Saturday morning show, which was always great because you'd be out till like two or three in the morning. Maybe even later than that, you'd roll out of bed at like 8, 8.30. I'd run the Starbucks. I'd get my coffee. And then I'd do two hours of radio with one of my good friends. And it was great. We we had a blast doing that show. And we treated it like it was RFAN. We treated it like it was RESPN radio. Right. Like everything we did was full tilt, balls to the wall. 
producer. We'd get calls. We'd actually get a lot of calls. And we put our heart and soul into those shows for two years. So my biggest advice to anybody listening who's like going out, trying to be a broadcaster, is in a broadcasting program at some college, make sure you're involved in the college radio station. It's where you get your experience, where you get your feet wet. And it's where you're going to get your first demo tapes that you're going to send to a station somewhere. I know you interned at Sirius XM and a little bit at The Fan as well, and then ended up starting as a sports reporter down at the Jersey Shore right after college just to do something. How did that come to be? And then how did you end up starting to send out your different things to try and get back on the airwaves? Well, I was sending stuff out the minute I graduated. In fact, even before I graduated, I was sending stuff out. But it's hard, man. That's really... That's the one thing that I think you got to look at if you're looking to get into broadcasting. Know that you're going to whiff a, a bunch of times when it comes to jobs that are posted. Um, I applied to a job in Salt Lake City. I was a finalist for I didn't get it. Applied for a job in Buffalo. doing updates. I was a finalist. Didn't get it. Um, and I think it was probably five or six months out of college, and I didn't have a job. So, you know, I go to Syracuse, I spend all this money on school, didn't have a job in broadcasting, and it was frustrating because I thought I was good enough to yeah, I thought it was good enough to get an opportunity, but it wasn't coming my way. So I actually was working part time jobs, trying to make ends meet. Then I got this job down to Jersey Shore in high school games, which was a lot of fun. I mean it was me, three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm sitting there, I'm spitting sunflower seeds, I'm in a baseball game. Right keeping score, and then I talked to a couple of high school coaches after the fact. I really had a lot of fun with it. It didn't pay me a lot of money, but I was doing it five or six days a week, and it was better than working some other part-time job that I couldn't stand. So I always had my sights set on getting back into the radio business, and while I was covering these games down the shore, Fan had this fantasy phenom contest, which for those of you who are unaware of what exactly that is, um, at the time, it was probably 800 to 1,000 people. They went out to like three or four different shopping malls. You auditioned in front of my two bosses, Mark Chernoff and Eric Spitz. And it, it was very American Idol-esque. Like the first round, if you're somewhat competent, okay, they'll put you through. Then they broke it up from about 1,000 people to about 50 people in five different, I think like restaurants, bars. Like I was at Stout, which the quality spot. Um, in midtown Manhattan, right by Madison Square Garden. So then it broke it up, and it was a little bit more intimate. You did like a two, three-minute monologue. You answered a couple of questions on what was going on in sports at that particular time. So I, I was hopeful that by getting this opportunity, I'd find my way to Barre. Because if I made it to Barre, my thought process is twofold. Number one, it will be an audition tape on FAN on Mike's show, which is just fantastic. Right. And number two, who the hell knows? Maybe I'll actually win the damn thing. As it turns out, I make it to Barre. I'm pumped up about it. Um, I'm down there the entire day. And, you know, everybody's drinking. Everybody's having a good time. And I'm just sitting there with my sister who came down with me. And, you know, I had my computer just on Twitter, fooling around, doing this, doing that. And I was like, all right, I'm going to last. Watched everybody who had went that particular day. And, you know, some of the people did a halfway decent job. One or two of them was pretty awful. And I said, all right, let's do this. I'm ready to rock and roll. I went up there. You sit on stage with the Pope. And you look out, and there's just a crap load of people everywhere. And I'm like, oh, my God, there are just so many people. Right. It, but once you put the headset on, 
and once you got into your, you know, your routine, you do your monologue, I interviewed David Robertson, I felt pretty good about it. I felt pretty confident about it. And here we are, won the contest. So I guess it worked out pretty well. What was that day like for you? What did it mean for you to win? And where did that take you? I know you won a year-long gig with the fan, a two-hour show, one night a week, went to the winner. So what was that whirlwind like that day of and then some of the things you were able to do after that? It was a life-changing opportunity. I I can't put it any other way. Changed my life, put me at the radio station I've always wanted to work at. Um, That day was awesome. I was not even nervous because I said, you know what? Screw it. I have one opportunity. I'm going to do the best I can. Make or break, right? Um, And it went well. The next couple of days, though, were weird because I thought I was the best. The judges thought I was the best. But you never know. I didn't know how much of an impact fan voting was going to be. I didn't get the sense for how it was going to play out. So I didn't really let out that sigh of relief and really didn't get a chance to celebrate until I found out that Monday. I got a call from Chernoff, and I went on with Joe and Evan later in the day, and I knew that I won the contest. But like you just said, the contest was great, but I was already kind of thinking ahead to, all right, I got a year, two-hour show once a week. I got to make the most of this opportunity. And that was the thing for me. I, once I started, you know, the first show, I'm definitely not pleased with it because I kind of consider myself a hard marker and I'm tough on myself. And it was the first time I'd done a solo radio show, honestly, in about two years. That was the one thing in college, too. We were talking about solo shows and doing shows with a partner. Before I went to FAN, I'd probably done two or three solo shows in my life. That's it. Like most of the shows that I had done uh, were with somebody. Now I prefer almost working by myself. I have it down with science. It's that comfortable for me. But once I got used to, you know, the format and the breaks and this and that, I would say by the second or third show, I felt really, really comfortable with what I was doing. And I think I got an email from them right around the holidays where they started giving me more and more work. And I was like, all right, this is a good sign. They keep giving me more work. They keep giving me more chances. And by the end of that year, when the summertime came, there were weeks where I was working four or five, six days a week, which was awesome. Um, and after that first year, there wasn't like really, oh, we're going to lock you into a contract. We're going to promise you this. We're going to promise you that. It was more or less, you did a good job. We liked you. We wanted you to keep working. We have more part-time work for you. Are you ready to take that? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So here we are five years later, and I'm still working at the fan. I have my show Saturday night, and then I have a bunch of shows throughout the weeks and months, depending on what the schedule looks like. As someone who grew up in New York, was it easier for you to develop your voice on the fan because you were a native New Yorker, you were familiar with the pulse of sports talk radio in the city already and what the channel had to offer. Did that make that transition to having your own show a little bit easier than it might have if you did get that job, say, in Salt Lake City or have to go up to Buffalo? It's a great question. I think it's a great point. Um, yes, it definitely made my life a lot easier. I knew the station. I knew the teams. I knew the fans. I didn't have to take the time to learn a new area to learn about the history of those franchises. Because, yes, if you work in Buffalo, you work in Salt Lake City, you work in Cleveland, in a general sense, all right, if you go up to Buffalo, the Bills lost four Super Bowls in a row. But you need to know more than that. You need to know the heartache. You need to know the anguish. You go to Cleveland, 
you really need to put the time in with all three of those teams and what it's like to be a fan of those teams. I knew what it was like, even though I don't root for either the Jets or the Giants, the Yankee Mets, the Jets Giants, Knicks, the Rangers, you name it. I had a sense of the fabric of the town, and it did help me in my shows because I knew it was going to be topical. I knew my back knowledge was going to help me. So, yeah, working a fan for sure helped me kind of get my career kickstarted in a sense where I didn't feel like I had to get my feet wet learning a town and learning a new city. What's interesting is that you're technically a local show, so whereas a national show host might be expected to know more about sports and teams and players and those sports, local hosts seem to have a stigma that they don't need to know as much because it's just the local teams, if you will. Could you argue that it might be even harder because you have to know, say, the third-string quarterback or the third-string tight end on the Jets, who's in the D-League for the Knicks, who's coming up through the system? Was there a team or a sport that maybe you had to touch up on a little bit when you first got started? Yeah, I would say hockey is that sport for me. I mean, it's my fourth sport. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, baseball, football, basketball have always been my babies. And right. Hockey's always been like the distant cousin. But when I started at the station, the Rangers really got good. So I watched the Rangers, you know, from time to time. I'm not going to lie to you. With the other sports I'm watching day after day after day, with hockey, I watch a few games in a regular season. It's a postseason sport. I always find myself in a position where, okay, come the playoffs, I'm going to know what's going on with these particular teams. Right. But the Rangers, I noticed when I started, I said, you know what, let me watch a lot more regular season hockey. This team is really good. Let me immerse myself and know this team a lot more. And it helped me because the first year I was a fan, they made their way to the Eastern Conference Finals and lost to the Devils. So coming on the air, Coming on right after the game, it was very helpful putting that extra research in and knowing the team as well as I did. Um, but to get back to the original question about doing a national show and doing a local show, I do both. I think they both present very different challenges. Right. I, I think, personally, even if you're hosting a local show, you should know what's going on nationally. And to me, you're not doing your research and you're not doing your homework if you don't know a big story that's going on nationally. Like, I don't know how you go on the air in New York and don't know what's going on across the league. Okay, maybe you're not going to know the specifics of like a second-string quarterback battle in Cleveland, but doing a national show, nobody expects you to know that. What they expect you to know, though, is that RG3 got hurt, right. that the Cleveland Browns have been a dysfunctional circus of quarterbacks for the last decade, and that they're starting a third-string quarterback this Sunday against the Miami Dolphins. Okay, if you're hosting a national show, you should know that. But to be honest, I think if you're hosting a local show in New York, you should know that too. I think you need to know the National Football League inside and out, doing local or doing national. Um, a difference, I would say, in doing the local and doing the national Doing a local, the baseball is going to play a lot more. You're right. going to have to be very ready to do daily Yankees and Mets throughout the course of the summer. Um, when you're doing national, the NBA will play a lot more because you have LeBron and you have Curry and you have these storylines that kind of last throughout the course of the year. And I would think with a national show, you also have much more freedom hit on whatever that hot button topic in sports may be, whether it's, I don't know, uh, a fight between Joey Bats and Odor, whether it's Colin Kaepernick not standing for the national anthem. I, I think you have more free reign 
get into those sort of topics doing a show that everybody's listening to across the country. Did you have any radio role models or anyone you tried to emulate yourself after when you were on air? I think we might know one of those people, but I figured I'd throw it out anyway in case there was more than one. Yeah, good question. Um, to me, listen, you're going to hear guys say this. You got to be yourself. And I, I definitely try to be me when I get on the air. People who are listening for JJ, they want to know what you feel. They want to know how you are. So I try to be myself as often as I can. But, of course, growing up listening to sports radio, there are going to be guys, just like any great broadcaster listens to the guy before him, where you listen to guys and you learn a thing here, a thing there, and you pick up something from this guy and you pick up something from that guy. So I'm going to give you four shows that really, I think, molded and influenced me a great deal. And you know the first, of course, is Mike and the Mad Dog. That goes around saying they're the gold standard. But I had the opportunity in 2008 to intern at Sirius with Adam Shine doing, and he was doing um, the Sirius Blitz at NFL Radio at the time. And I think he's terrific. I, th I think he's prepared. I think he's passionate. I think he's quirky. I think he's damn good. So, you know, working with Shine throughout the course of the summer, you're not going to hear me getting my Adam Shine voice. There's Adam Shine, niggas, you know. But well, you had enough Syracuse sports to talk about, right? That little connection yeah, that you exactly. all shared. Between me and him, we could go back and forth forever. But, you know, just the way he goes into a break, the way he handles a call, that was very useful for me. Um, I interned with Moose the following summer at FAN and being around Moose and seeing how he interacted with the overall cars kind of molded my show a little bit to some degree. And then going back to when I listened to the overnight for years, the guy who I just thought killed it. And I love the way he did the overnight was Joe. And Joe was crazy and he'd be yelling and he'd be passionate. You could tell his heart was truly into doing those shows from one to six or from two to six AM. So I would have to mention all four of those shows because in some way or form, they have impacted me as a sports talk host, whether I know it or not. So your main show on the fan, JJ After Dark, is starting at 1 or 2 in the morning on Saturdays. So you might end up getting some interesting phone calls, I'm guessing, throughout the course of the night. And you also have to be able to fill that four to five hours with interesting content to want to make people continue to listen what do you think some of the biggest challenges for you were having to fill that particular time slot and really making it your own? Always make sure that you have an idea going into a show, what you're going to talk about. Now, I don't script material, um, I, but I kind of mentally prepare. All right, I'm going to do Yankees Mets today. I'm going to touch on some NFL today. I'm going to touch on some stories going around the NFL. So I'll do my research. I'll make sure I'm ready to go before I come in to do a show. Um, one thing I'll say, when you're on for four or five hours, don't be afraid to repeat yourself. Because not that you're going to recite the exact same monologue you did at one or two in the morning at 5.40 in the morning, but you're going to have a very different audience. Your audience from two or three is the late night crowd, maybe some people coming back from bars, maybe people having a nice Friday or Saturday night. And then when you hit after 4 a.m., you got people waking up. So you got to remember, you got a different set of people listening to a four or a five hour show. Right. So realize that. Don't be afraid to piggyback on something you did earlier. 
don't be afraid to expand upon something you did earlier. And know that you have different people listening to the show. I think that's very, very important to realize. What's your typical day-to-day life like when it comes to radio? I know for Saturday, you're probably getting up at about 3 in the afternoon because of how late you have to stay up, but I know you're doing other things throughout the week as well. What would you say Saturday is like and then the week in general when it comes to sports talk radio and some of the things you're up to? Um, It's definitely not a case where I can sleep till 3. I wish I could, but... Usually I got a softball game, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Right. So it's always something, man. And a lot of times the Yankees and the Mets on Saturday are going to play at 1 o'clock. So I want to make sure I'm up watching the games. Um, normally, I'm going to make sure I watch both, both teams play baseball if it's a Saturday during the season. Um, I'm going to make sure that I watch some college football, whatever the big games are throughout the course of the day. Read a couple articles in a variety of different sources on the Jets and the Giants. and a pro football talk or whatever to get me ready for doing some football stuff. Um, watch a bunch of games, get to the studio maybe an hour, 45 minutes before and hang out with the guys for a little bit, watch a late night game and get ready to get on the air. I, I wish it was more of a detailed science to what I do, but it's pretty much watch games, react to games and get ready to do a show. That's pretty much sports talk radio in a nutshell. I'd say what has been or who has been the craziest phone call you've ever gotten while doing a late night show that you were forced to interact with at maybe three or four in the morning? Craziest late night call. Oh my God. I've had so many of them. It's like, how do you even keep track? Um, one off the top of my head. Oh, geez. I've gotten some crazy trade proposals that I could tell you for sure. Um, Usually it's some like zany, zany person with an agenda of some sort, whether it's political, whether it's religious. You get it, one of them every now and again. I-, I wish I had a great example for you. I really don't. But odds are, if you listen to me for four or five hours, you're going to have somebody uh, say something crazy about a team, say right. somebody should be fired, say somebody should be traded. Well, I guess that's a little bit on your producer and call screeners as well to make sure you're not getting the belligerent drunks calling into the well, show the too late. There's a fun, but there's a fine line. We like a little crazy. Right. When you can't put a sentence together, yeah, you shouldn't be on right. the air. If you're going to say some outrageous stuff, sometimes, though, as stupid as it may be, it'll get me going a little bit. It will get me to piggyback off that a little bit. So I'll never encourage, uh, discourage someone from, you know, saying something that is totally outrageous because sometimes it does actually help the show. Right. Since you're a solo host, you're able to go a little bit deeper in the conversation with the callers, and they're almost able to drive the show in a way at certain different points. I wanted to know how you're able to handle the callers, some of the things that you might allow them to do how you handle the conversation where you can be thorough with what they have to say, but you also aren't letting them necessarily take over the show. Precisely. And that is what I try to do. I try to be very diplomatic and fair with the callers. I give them a decent amount of time. If they if they do a good job, um, I love having callers on my show. It gets me going. It's a big part of what I do, but you're not going to listen to my show and hear a caller go on for four or five minutes. I'm going to interject because I want it to be very, very clear to the audience that I'm running the show. Like, that's just the way it's going to be. They pay me to do the show. 
I'm going to run the show. And some people may, you know, take that as, oh, I'm disrespectful, and I cut the callers off. No, I try to have a conversation with the caller. If the caller's going on for two, two and a half minutes, and I think they're just, quite frankly, being way too long-winded, I'm going to try to jump in and just go back and forth and get the show moving. I try to run a quick-moving show. I, I try to get as many callers involved as I can. I try to get a good, energetic back and forth. But I think it's very, very important that, yes, you give the callers their fair shake, but at the same time, the audience is listening to the program because I would say 85% of your audience is not a bunch of your callers. Right. So that 80, 85% of people know, okay, JJ has a handle on this. She is running the show, not this guy, not that guy. When it comes to the late night show and interviews with coaches or players, I'm guessing you're not getting Joe Girardi to reach out to you at about 4 a.m. Have you been able to get coaches or players to come on the show, or is it something where you just play interview clips from throughout the day just to get people up to date on what's been going on? No, we'll get interviews. It's it's normally not going to be a coach, and it's normally not going to be a player. But if there's a writer, if there's a broadcaster covering a late game, we may get them in the mix. Right. I do uh, a gambling spot for football. I have a guy in the mix Saturday and Sunday to get you ready for football. Whatever's topical. Um, I'm not a big fan of interviews. Like I try to avoid them. I would rather cover the content myself. But there are some very, very good writers. There are some very, very good broadcasters. And when I think they can add something to enhance the show, I most certainly put them on. Like if the Mets pulled uh very eventful game, and there's a lot of questions for Terry Collins. Yeah, we're not going to get Terry Collins, but I'm going to get one of my guys that I really trust that covers the team and get the insight and go from there. Right. Um, when I do network, though, I get a lot more of an opportunity to talk to coaches, to talk to players. It, it's pretty cool as far as having that chance. Like when you do a network show at night, a lot of times you do the NCAA tournament or after a Thursday or a Sunday night football game they'll give us a player, which is really cool. And it gives me an opportunity to do something different. Has there been a player or a coach that sticks out to you as someone you were a little bit in awe with while doing the interview that you never thought you'd get a chance to speak to, but because of this platform here, you were side by side getting to ask questions. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, a couple of years ago, I fill in on CBS sports radio. They have a show called Eye on baseball and I do it from time to time with T.J. Nikowski. He's a really good guy who works at Fox Sports 1. And we got Buck Walter on the show. And this was about two, two and a half years ago, I want to say. And not that I was in awe of Buck Walter in any way, but the guy's one of the best managers in baseball. Right. And having the opportunity to go back and forth with him over a 15-minute interview, I was like, damn, this was pretty damn cool. This is a real high-profile guest. And it was really cool having somebody like that on the air. I don't really get in awe of much of the guests anymore because I'm kind of just numb to it. Um, I'll tell you this, though. There are two guys I would have on the air, and it would be like, holy crap, I can't believe this guy's on the air. And I met one of them. Dan Marino is definitely one of those guys. Because I grew up watching him. He's one of my idols. Like When I met Dan Marino, there are very few athletes that I can be in presence, and I'm like, wow, starstruck. Like, I could be in the Yankee locker room. I could be in the Dolphin locker room now. And, yeah, I root for these guys. I'm big fans of these guys. But, you know, they're a dude. I'm a dude. And, you know, it doesn't have that same thrill for when you were once a kid and you grew up watching them when you were 9, 10, 11 years old. Does that make sense? You view them very differently right. as professional athletes. 
But Dan Marino is probably one of those guys. The other one would be Jeter, just because he's Derek Jeter. If I had the opportunity to interview Derek Jeter for 20, 25 minutes, even though he's not going to give you much, it's still Derek Jeter, for goodness sakes. Like, this is the guy that I watched his entire career, won five championships. That would be pretty, pretty cool, you know? I can't talk about the fan without asking you about your relationship with the most famous voice of WFAN and Mike Francesa, if there is one at all. But I figured I would at least throw it out there to see if you guys have any interaction or if it was just getting the chance to sit next to him when you were at his beach bash trying to make it onto the scene in 2011. No, Mike's a good guy. Uh, I would say we get along well. Um, do I text Mike like daily, like he's one of my buddies? No, but when I see him around the station, we say hello to each other. He asks me how the shows are going. He's always kind of been a mentor to me in some regard. I mean, like I said, no, I don't talk to him daily, but we have a relationship. Yeah, he invited me in the studio when I won the contest, maybe two months after. Brought me on the air for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, the one thing I'd say with Mike, he's not a warm and fuzzy guy. He's right. not going to be a guy that is like hugging everybody on the newsroom. He has a very different personality than I do. He has a very different personality maybe than Mike, uh, than Dog would, would have around the newsroom. But that's what makes Mike Mike. Um, I have a close relationship with his driver, Julio. Uh, to answer your question, we're on good terms. We don't speak that often. But when we do, yeah, I, I would say it's cordial and it's productive. Do you have a favorite Mike Francesa story? And is there something that sticks out to you from an experience you've had or heard from with Mike that you think is worthy of sharing on the air? I'll tell you a good Mike story. And this is going to maybe belittle me a little bit, but it's funny. So I'm going to take a little plug of myself here. So this is like maybe in March. He knows I work at Fan. Um, I'd mentioned to him a couple of different times that I work at the network, but I guess that one ear and out the other. You know, the guy's got 10,000 things going on. He's not going to remember where I'm working at every particular moment right. at every particular time. Um, so I'm there doing a 6 to 10 network show in the evening. I'm filling for DA, and Mike's there, and I'm there, and I'm getting, making some tea, just getting ready for the start of the show. Mike sees me. He's like, John, what's going on? How are you? Uh, I'm like, Mike, doing fine. He goes, oh, what are you, what are you doing here? He goes, uh, is it Steve on after me today? I was like, well, yeah, he is. You're right. Uh, I'm hosting over at the network. I'm doing six to 10. He goes, Oh, you work at the network. Good for you. I like, he kind of didn't remember at all that I had worked at the network. And I was like, no, I'm like, I've been there for three years. He's like, Oh, like just very, you know, like kind of like he is on the air where he doesn't remember something. Right. And it like kind of just hits him. But it was funny because I told him, you know, four or five different times, that I work at the network, but it just shows you that when it comes to the bubble that is Mike Francesa, if it is not a part of it, he is not going to remember. That's just the bottom line. Well, if anything, you'll always have a conversation starter, if that's the case, when you're making two. Yeah, there you go. Right. And then, I mean, and I'm talking to him for five minutes about Syracuse. This is when they were in the NCAA tournament. I was telling him they are going to beat Gonzaga. He was like, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. So. We're on the same page there, so going back and forth with the pump, always cool. So before I let you go, I wanted to throw this out. I know you're doing the show on the fan on Saturday nights. You're filling in at CBS Sports, and I just wanted to ask where you hope to maybe see yourself in the next couple of years. I know the fan in general will be shaken up a little bit when Mike ends his contract in 2018, and they'll have some holes to fill and some different things to move around. But just for you in general – 
continuing to do this day after day, where you hope to see yourself, some of the goals that you've set for yourself, and how you can continue advancing through the sports broadcasting industry? Yeah, it's a great question. Where it ended. Um, I've been a fan for five years. It's been the time of my life. I've been at CBS Sports Radio for, what, almost three years now. It's been a different opportunity, and it's also been fantastic. Um, I, I would say the next step for me is trying to lock in somewhere, somehow, to get a five-day-week gig. Um, I'm hopeful that it will come as hand at some point, but they may reach, reach a point. I don't know if it's two years from now. I don't know if it's five years from now where I'm going to explore other opportunities. But I got, I, I'm in a really good place right now in my career. Between fan and CBS, I just started doing TV at SNY, which is great. It gives me a different platform to do stuff. I'm doing games at Wagner College. I'm doing games for the Staten Island Yankees as far as PA. So it's just a different challenge day in and day out. And I just try to do the best that I possibly can, not to be like lame and cliche. But with every show that I do, I approach it like it's afternoon one to six. I approach it like it's game seven of the World Series. I hope it comes across that way to the listeners. Very happy to be there. That I love being a part of whatever audience it may be and whatever time uh, my bosses give me to be on the air. So I, I just approach it day by day. And uh, hopefully within the next couple of years, I have more work, more opportunities, and away we go. Can you give a quick synopsis to the listeners on where they might be able to find you on the airwaves or on TV? I mean, at least we can start at your Saturday night show. Yes, you'll always hear me Saturday and Sunday on WFAN, then you can find me all over the place. You honestly have to check week by week, depending on schedules, Yankee off days, people taking off. But if you check my Twitter page, John underscore Jastrzemski, J-A-S-T-R-E-M-S-K-I, I promise you, I'll tell you when I'm on the fan. I'll tell you when I'm on Studio Sports Radio. I'll tell you when I'm going to be on SNY. If you check that Twitter page out, you will know my day-to-day schedule. I promise you that. JJ, I have to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure getting to talk about some of the different things you're up to and, and New York sports in general. As you mentioned, we hope to continue to hear you on and continue to see you work through the industry and be able to provide us with some great content in the next several years to come. You got it, my friend. It was an absolute pleasure, and hopefully we do this a couple months. I'm more than happy to do it. Anytime. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this week's show on SportsRadioAmerica.com and find this week's show and all previous shows on my website at LondonBridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at LondonBridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund under Artists. On the next installment of The Bridge, we'll take a look around the National Football League, check out how the MLB playoff picture is shaping up, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.